From Fridays for Future Digital, this is the ninth episode of The Voice of the Youth, Beyond the Movement, People of FFF with Aishwarya Kuthur and Saima Zaman. We are joined by the lovely guests Tim and Shik. Fridays for Future Digital is an international youth-led movement running digital campaigns to create change and make the movement more accessible. There are varieties of ideas and versions of the world where the climate crisis is tackled. For many climate activists, the fight against the crisis is a chance to rebuild the societies we live in. To look forward, we have to acknowledge the past, of course. The Guardian has even stated that capitalism has contributed to the breaching of several ecological boundaries in relation to climate change, biodiversity loss, and nutrient enrichment. However, others argue that green capitalism can have the solutions to the climate crisis. That's why today we're discussing the big C's, capitalism, colonialism and well, the climate crisis. How they interlink and before the doom spiral begins, how we can combat these forces too. First of all, these three words can be thrown around a lot, so it's important we demystify these words so we can understand them a little bit better. Stanford's Encyclopedia of Philosophy defines colonialism as the practice of domination and transferring a population to a new territory. Now, it's also important to mention that the word colonialism goes hand in hand with the word imperialism, which means to command or demand power in another country. Another word that's thrown around a lot is capitalism. Capitalism is an economic and cultural system. It's sometimes called a free market economy, where private ownership equals means of production. Now, Daniel Macmillan Voskobuenik says in his book, The Memory We Could Be, that nature was a blank state to be reconfigured and rendered useful. When colonizers arrived, maps were redrawn, inhabitants ousted, and new methods of production installed. So to look forward to the future, we need to understand the history that has got us here and the present which we do our activism in. Hi. Hello, my name is Aishwarya Puthur, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the organization working group coordinator at FFF Digital. Hello, my name is Simon Zaman, I use she slash her pronouns, and I'm currently helping out with podcasts, social media, and overall research at FF Digital. All right, now that we've gotten over the introduction, let's meet our guests. First, we have Tim Parik, who writes about ecological economics. He also has a PhD in economics from the French University of Clermont-Auvergne and the Stockholm Resilience Center titled, quote unquote, the political economy of degrowth and has quite guiltily admitted he spends much of his time playing chess online. I do. Team, as much as I would love to hear about all your online chess endeavors, I feel like I should ask instead, what does the term degrowth actually mean? And many of our listeners may not be familiar with the term. Yes, I guess that's the million dollar question. So I'm going to give you my favorite definition, which is not mine. It's from uh, Jason Hickel. So he defines degrowth as, quote, a planned downscaling of energy and resource use to bring the economy back into balance with the living world in a safe, just and equitable way. End of quote. That's from his book, uh, Less is More, from, from last year. Um 
I'm just going to point to four essential features of degrowth that we see in this definition. The first one is the most obvious, obvious one we think about when we hear degrowth. So that's what I like to call the biophysical diet. We want to reduce the material size of the economy as a way to, let's say, minimize environmental pressures. That's feature number one, sustainability. But we want to do this in a way that is safe, as Jason Hickel say, in a way that's not going to endanger our ability to satisfy our needs. And I'm pretty sure we'll get into discussing whose needs we're talking about. Uh, it not, so that's the second feature, which is well-being. The third feature is social justice. It needs to be in a just way. And that's, I guess, another thing we'll, we'll be discussing today. It needs to be a transition that leaves those that are most vulnerable today better off. So as we often say in the literature, the first degrowth is the one of inequality. So we have sustainability, well-being, justice. And the last one is democracy. So often in definitions, you know, we're talking of a planned downscaling, a democratically led, a voluntary, uh, you know, a collective and deliberative transition. So that's a key aspect of degrowth too. It's not something just a, a natural reaction to an outside event. It's a collective process of basically discussing and designing a more fair uh, and sustainable economy. Thank you. That was super helpful. Our other equally brilliant guest who has joined us today is Sheik. Sheik has recently completed his education focusing on the social science of ecological collapse and as a thesis that sorts to find pathways to alternatives. In Singapore, he has also been involved in the global extinction rebellion movement and is currently designing interventions that can facilitate a justice and co-liberation-led recovery towards a future post-COVID. Sheik, could you tell us a bit more about yourself? Sure. Hi, Saima. Thank you uh, for having me and thanks, Tim, for that great definition. Um, I was under the impression that we would be kind of oppositional, but I, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this comes along. Um, I have been involved with Extinction Rebellion for a while. I was rather for about two years, um, quite, quite a deep dive, took a year of university to work on it and realized along the way that um, activism that is um, oppositional, that stops harm from being prevented, only makes sense if there are equally um, strong efforts being made to actually rebirth and you know create the foundations for the regenerative um, societies that are going to take the place once all of this toxicity um, is defeated or is or is um, transformed into more um, generative ways of being. So that's that's what I am focusing on these days. You know, uh, I just graduated, so the the <laughs> the travails of a more um, normative lifestyle do call upon me. I need to get a job and things like that. Um, but I'm working on a couple of startups that are focused on regenerative um, ways of being, regenerative development, regenerative funding. And maybe since I'm throwing around the word so much, um, I'll quickly explain what regenerative means is um, it goes beyond sustainable. So often when people talk about ecological states of being, you know, there's the first one, which is protecting or preventing for the damage. Um, then what is most used in common parlance today is sustainability, which talks about ensuring that this, the, the ecological piece of, uh, you know, nature um, continues on for, you know, the next few generations. But regeneration actually says that we don't stop at sustaining what there is, but actually make efforts to nourish it, make it thrive such that 
it produces to greater it leads to greater well-being for the planet for the people for societies so actually moving one step beyond maintaining into making thrive and that's that's my main um, goal you can say right now is to focus on how everything can be made more regenerative from you know the, the claustrophobic offices of uh, of a city state very modernist like singapore to um yeah the farms in india where farmers are protesting right now for their right um to have a good life and for well being so yeah I'll, i'll stop there for now so it's a little bit of a smattering of thoughts That was amazing. Thank you so much. I've been recently looking into regenerative economies and just researching about all that. So this is great to hear. I can't wait to hear your ideas and thoughts. All right. Now that we know a little bit more about our guests, let's start learning about their thoughts about the relationship between capitalism, colonialism, and climate change. To start this conversation, Sheik, I wanted to ask you first. How do you think colonialism has created and has contributed to the current climate crisis? Oh, <laughs> I could probably speak um, a lot about this. It'll be a little difficult to contain my thoughts, um, but I think the basic um, understanding that I have of how colonialism is the root of the climate crisis is that it's a form of thinking, a form of being, um, a, a worldview that um, separates the individual. or the human um from nature and from from other humans from community that focuses more on conquest on control on trying to comprehensively understand everything like one of the main um ideas of colonialism is to go into these quote unquote exotic and strange lands where there are these people who are you know living in ways that are very different from what the colonizers um so um seeing those peoples as uncivilized as um being you know um primitive as as being at the far backward end of a very linear trajectory of what civilizational development looks like and so this is the very same ideology that we see continued today in how big corporations um governments through neo imperialism continue to think of the environment as something that is separated as you know the the indigenous peoples that have co-evolved with those environments as being undeveloped and in need of you know aggressive development so i would say that it's this basic epistemology of colonialism which centers um conquest and manipulation of nature of control of superiority of human kind or man or you know straight privileged arguably white man um as being as the apex of of being alive um and i think that w- once those conquests started once it started to become normalized that it's okay to you know go to another land and cause a genocide um kill all the people take over their lands redistribute it use it for you know activities that absolutely decimate the local environments but also as we've seen over the last 200 years um the global environments uh, i would say the main reason that colonialism for me is at the root of the crisis is because of this way of thinking um that completely alienated us humans that have evolved together with nature for literally tens of thousands of years and even hundreds of thousands of years um as seeing ourselves as separate um and of um feeling like it's our right to a uh, mess um with other balanced ecosystems that you know have similarly evolved through through many years yeah that was wonderfully put 
Um, Tim, do you have anything to add to that? Yes, I mean, I, I, I really like how Sheik opened that discussion. And for me, that made me think of a, a double process of, of imperialism. The, the first, of course, I'm an economist, so I pay attention to these type of things, but the, the way capitalism functions, it relies on a constant import of uh, resources from its periphery. So that's the first real process of imperialism to have growing economies in certain regions of the world. So the early capitalist countries, the so-called you know, developed world, high income nations, they have to constantly, you know, find ways to um, access uh, new uh, labor time and energy and materials from outside of uh, themselves. So that's the real process. And today we see this, uh, for example, in studies of what we call uh, ecologically unequal exchange. So the fact of when you look at trade patterns in the world, you see that natural resources are just flowing from the global south and the peripheries and are getting concentrated into industrial nations. So that's the real imperialism of global capitalism. But it also acts at a more imaginary level. I've heard the word ideology and I like this very much. I think there's uh, today a, a certain hegemony of development globally where somehow um, the West has been selling the story of this linear process of development where, you know, your primitive society until you manage to organize market, privatize commons, uh, you know, install just wage labor relations, basically grow yourself a capitalist economy and then just make it accelerate until you reach high level of GDP per capita. And then finally, you manage to get the label of being developed. So this is kind of this uh, narrowing of all the aspirations uh, and different definition of prosperity in the world into a very narrow statistical Western defined uh, definition of development. And of course, when we connect the two, we see that this story, the hegemony of development is, and that's a, a point that Jason Hickel makes very well in his last book, Less is More, is a story that legitimate the real patterns of social ecological exploitation that I was talking about through processes of extractivism, neocolonialism, and all the different patterns of uh, unequal exchanges. I really, really love the way you brought in economy here. Obviously, you are an economist, but, you know, when we talk about these topics, often at times, at least as a climate activist, at least within the movement, it's always been about, you know, the kind of social aspect, which is so very important and needs to be talked about. But the economical aspect is very important as well. So thank you for adding on to that. All right. Now, considering the very title of our episode is, quote unquote, the relationship between capitalism, colonialism and climate change, I'd like to invite both of you to lay out how you see this relationship that is so obviously interconnected with one another. Um, now, I don't mind who starts, so just feel free to speak up. So I'll continue a bit my line of thought. So if we get to the core of what capitalism is, and it is in the name, capitalism is a system organized around the accumulation of capital. And what is capital? Capital is anything that is being mobilized into a process of production. 
And when we understand production, we need to understand that's a transformation of something that already existed into something else. So as we say, I don't think, you know, communities or nature is in a blank state, uh, you know, waiting as resources to be just uh, made available and exploited in processes of production. So capitalism tries to transform anything to turn them into resources that can be mobilized into a process of production. So for example, uh, we see now in, in countries, uh, I, I remember in Portugal a few years ago when they were just removing holidays, you know, like uh, public holidays to boost economic growth. Here's that's a very good example of trying to make labor time available so that it can be mobilized in a process of production of commodities. Same thing, you know, when uh, processes where uh, let's say corporations try to, you know, get access to fisheries outside or to new mines or sources of energy here. It's a, it's a constant mobilization of whatever can be used in the process of production, of course, for the purpose of generating a profit. So this is also what capitalism is about. Another big institution like for-profit competition between private firms. And so, of course, if you let this happen a very, very long time, I think when we understand production, we often think of just, you know, almost like a magician taking a rabbit out of a hat and who oh, look, I've produced a chair out of nowhere. But we don't think that before that chair came to exist at IKEA, it was a tree somewhere and someone may have had a relation to that tree. Um, let it be, a, you know, so uh, someone may have livelihood may have depended on that tree. And same thing after when that chair will no longer be used, the waste and pollution created by uh, the disposal of that chair may affect someone's livelihood. So when I hear about production as an ecological economist, I'm, I'm hearing transformation. And that's one of the problem because Sheik said it very well, like there's a process of domination in order to be able to make resources available. It's very easy to create that, to tell yourself that story of separation. It is not the forest, it is not Mother Earth, it is not, you know, uh, animals that we see them in Disney films, you know, uh, Babe and Ratatouille, no. We create a separation and say these are resources and we exploit them because that's how we maximize our well-being, you know, as humans. So this is, is the story of, it's a story of domination and in relations toward resources that in my understanding facilitates the accumulation of capital. And now I'm going to add the, the third piece of the wheel, the climate crisis, for me, is the result of doing this for too long and too much, pushing against planetary boundaries, disrespecting, let's say, the balance of ecosystems. And again, disregarding the fact that nature was not a blank state before. It was a very complex living systems. And here I'm saying nature, but also communities and the way they're related to nature's. So somehow capitalism as a force of transformation is sometimes running into thresholds of deterioration. I'm thinking of, you know, fishing too much and then you have the collapse of the fisheries or transitioning communities too fast into wage labor and then you're losing some uh, traditional practices. All of this is what we're witnessing today, uh, uh, patterns of great acceleration, as we call them. And then, of course, we'll see later how degrowth feeds into this as a force that can actually slow down and uh, help us to transition outside of that mentality and structure of capitalism. Oh, um, thanks for that, Tim. Um, 
So I, I think you've really covered very well the more, you know, um, economic and the, 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 the functional aspect of how these two relate. So I was thinking of um, bringing it back to, you know, just paradigms. And I actually like to call um, capitalism and colonialism together as colonialist capitalism. I think that is what is at the root of a crisis, not just capitalism by itself or colonialism by itself. Um, and I think one thing that is important to point out is that um, it wasn't just Europe or Western Europe that engaged in annexation and subjugation of other peoples. It did happen in the rest of the world as well. But what separated these things was that in the West, it was done at an industrial scale. In the West, they actually moved beyond enslaving other people to actually um, putting them into plantations, you know, deliberately um, causing, you know, mass murders of both the people and their lands and replacing them with, you know, big industries, whether it's through agriculture or whether it's through actual machinery after the Industrial Revolution. So I think the first thing I'd want to say is that colonialist capitalism as a conjoint a phenomena is, in my opinion, what lies at the root of the crisis and not either of them individually. Um, the second thing is that um, it's also important to remember that while, you know, we, we can say that, you know, the, the, the nations of England, uh, um, France, Germany, which actually recently in a very problematic way agreed to pay some sort of reparations to Angola. Um, so, you know, many of these countries were, were the colonial, um, yeah, the ones who propagated this form of colonialist capitalism. It's actually always been the interest of a few, of the ruling class. And I think it's very important to remember that even today when we fight against climate change, we fight against ecological collapse, um, we are basically fighting against the wishes and demands and desires of a very, 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 very minuscule small number of people um, who who are who's yeah who are at, who are at the apex of this economic developmental growth um, um, yeah growth sort of pyramid um, and so I think it's important to also you know address the aspect of trauma over here it's something that I personally have been getting um, slightly closer to but how um, colonialism is is in one sense the projection of trauma that the colonial peoples um, projected upon, um, you know, all of all of the lands that they went to and terrorized, um, and then how that trauma of you know being colonized, being enslaved, continues to manifest today through you know, for example, I growing up in India. Um, of course, in India, you know, they talk about colonialism as something that was terrible for our country, but also as something that brought education to our country, that brought the railways to our country, that brought all these industrious um, endeavors that, you know, again, are at the root of why India is now one of the biggest contributors to the crisis. But actually colonialism continuing to manifest in my worldview as, you know, that's the right way. That's where India needs to go. India needs to like get hundreds of people, not hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people out of poverty. And, you know, what else would, what else would work if, if not getting them jobs and employing them at steel plants and things like that. So I think this enslavement of the brain of the sort of global paradigm of what is right, what needs to happen, especially among younger, you know, among us as, you know, Fridays for Future Strikers, 
as as students um, i think that is the most insidious way in in which colonialist capitalism continues to um you know pro propel the climate crisis and the ecological crisis forward and i think the only way to um to stop that is to you know recognize the fact that you know th there is this uh this trauma of separation from our ancestral lands from from of our ancestors from their lands from their ecosystems that continues to be embodied in us and and uh going back to i think what tim brought back uh, brought about a little bit to to slow down a little bit and that's that's what degrowth is about that's what regeneration is about and that's hopefully also what i hope that people listen to the podcast and take away because as activists we often we need to get up, get caught up in this urgency because tipping points are coming we're running out of time but the reality is that the wounds and the 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 systems of oppression that have been constructed over hundreds of years cannot be undone in a few years or in a decade and that's why there's this sort of delicate dance of you know dancing with the change seeing how we can at the same time prevent more harm from happening preserve what is still alive and thrive but also start to rebuild the foundations of a society of a planetary society where humans think of themselves as part of a bigger whole as part of this planetary organism um but without needing to enforce one way of thinking or even a few way of thinkings upon everyone um but rather make emergent a pluriverse of you know small groups of people societies acting of their own accord according to their own definition of well-being um and yeah it's really just coming back to well-being coming back to focusing on what you know what feels good as a society how can we enable that rather than impose arbitrary notions of how life must be no that was absolutely wonderful and yeah i really liked how you brought up the point about trauma from colonialism because um you know i am indian canadian myself so i have heard stories about how british colonizers came along a very personal stories from both parents and grandparents um on our native land and you know that trauma can never be reversed and i think when we talk about colonialism something that really needs to be understood is that the effects of colonialism obviously are seen to this day but on a very personal scale as well at least um like for me one thing that is huge and like hits me in the face every single time is probably like colorism and um a huge chunk of what colorism is in modern day society in south asia at least has originated from colonialism and it, i think it's extremely important to acknowledge that you know and it's like as a dark skinned south asian woman it's something that i face every single day and it is an aspect of colonial capital capitalist countries that have put on this trauma and um yeah i think younger generations at least and all of us are kind of realizing that you know how do we address this trauma that has been put on us um yeah so thank you so much for bringing that up all right so i'll pass it on to saima now for the next question Thank you for everyone for sharing such introspective answers. I relate on a very real level to what um, Ashwari was saying about um, Ashwari was saying about colorism. As um, a South Asian woman, I've experienced very similar things, and I really liked how everyone linked it back to real life examples because I think that's a very, very accessible and human way to teach about the climate crisis and colonialism, and it shows the real human cost of these crimes. And this actually leads on to 
this actually leads on to my next question, which was how do you think education about climate change should include talk about colonialism and imperialism? And I actually know that Ashwarya had some thoughts on this, so if she wanted to start the conversation. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I just think that when we talk about like how we should include colonialism and imperialism into conversations about climate, um, like in recent days, at least, I've seen a lot of white activists step up and talk about it, which is amazing. And finally, media, like some medias at least, are kind of catching on. But I feel like one thing that continuously is ignored is that how BIPOC, which stands for, for all our viewers, it stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, and MAPA, which stands for Most Affected Peoples and Places, have been like talking about these issues for so long because they personally have and are still experiencing the effects of colonialism and imperialism at its roots, um, as we mentioned earlier. And the capitalization of basically everything, um, aka profit over people and the planet. Um, but for some reason, and I think we all kind of know why due to white supremacy and like this colonial structure of how white voices are more um, superior to others, people only listen when white, white voices come into the picture. So I just kind of wanted to open up the conversation about education, about climate change, including colonialism and imperialism with that thought. Um, any thoughts from both team and Sheik? I can start with a, a thought and a, a personal experience. I'm, uh, I've studied economics uh, at university since since day one, so it, it, all all my studies in economics. And I, you know, it, it it I had to wait so many years before the words climate change were pronounced. So I think that's um, that's the first part. And here I'm only referring to economics education, but I think that has such a great importance because. The economic imaginary is so prevalent uh, today. The economy is considered to be something so important that everyone should have a basic education in economics. And if everyone is getting this very narrow-minded education in economics, that becomes a problem. So, for example, if we, uh, when you you learn economics, you learn a type of economics. I mean, what we we call neoclassical economics. So, let's say mainstream economics that do not really take into account for example, um, nature as a factor of production and also reproductive labor. So all the tasks that are non-monetary uh, done in, within the households or communities that are absolutely necessary to create goods and services uh, to satisfy well-being, but they do not lead to the production of commodities. And so therefore mainstream economists leave them out of their production function. So if you have this lens and you look back at the history of the industrial revolution, what you see is a miracle. Basically, you're like, wow, at some point, you know, Western Europe and, and North America just managed uh, magically to create a tremendous amount of wealth for themselves. And then, of course, today, you know, we have this uh, the mentality of, you know, it was all through innovation and technological progress. And we can do the same talking about green capitalism and green growth, just find good ideas to basically have another green revolution. But if you change the lens and bring in feminist economics to understand better the relation between reproductive labor and the world of commodity and ecological economics to account for all the resources we need, and of course, all the consequences that production has on ecosystems, we understand that the industrial revolution was not a miracle. It was just a big shifting of resources around. It was a big transformation of, uh, let's say, you know, certain assets 
let it be, you know, time in a community, skills, uh, uh, ecosystems, animals, uh, resources, energy, all of this that were somehow transformed into commodities. And here, of course, I'm, I'm not going to say that there was just no benefits in doing this. Of course, there were. I'm just saying that expecting that this happened magically is, of, is, is, um, is making us forget all the people that lost uh, the, that whose livelihood was just endangered and imperiled by the enrichment of certain regions of the world. So again, I'm, I'm speaking only about, I'm speaking a lot about economics here, but I think we need to recast a more holistic uh, vision of um, understanding how economies uh, develop in the general understanding of the term, how do they change in time uh, to be able to uh, make decisions about the future and decide, like, for example, me, I work a lot on green growth today. And I think using that argument I just made makes us realize that certain decisions we're making now in certain regions of the world will have tremendous consequences for others. And these absolutely need to be taken into account in the picture and included in that conversation. Thank you so much for like bringing in, you know, um, about the industrial revolution because every time in history class every time we talk about it i'm just like oh i have so much to say um because of how all of this you know the transformation of resources from and how certain countries got richer due to the imperialization of others right so it's like it's the benefits are only to some and not to all which which is definitely something that people across the world need to understand um yeah shake go ahead thank you um yeah, so just bouncing off of what Tim said, I think the most important thing that he mentioned in there is that when people are taught, taught about economics, they are taught about this one particular model, which actually I think arose out of these the work of two particular economists who completely divorced um, the ethical origins of the study of economics, uh, before which it was very much both a a transactional or a more resource oriented, but also an ethical science. And I think that pertains to what we started off this uh, session with is talking about paradigms and how the main function of colonialist capitalism is to make people divorced from their identity as just one form of this singular planetary organism that we are all parts of just like, you know, our cells are just one part of ourselves. We are also cells of the planet. And I think that's where education needs to start is going back to this collective identification, collective relationality that most indigenous um, cultures and systems have centered from the beginning of time. Yeah, I was just going to switch over um, from, you know, what, what kind of orientation is actually needed to, to talk about these things, you know, not, not actually name them so much, but talk more about how this alienation has happened and how it's critical for us to learn from the civilizations that have actually lasted the longest, um, where concepts like ecofeminism have inherently been there since forever, where the, the value of labor, the value of emotional care, the value of exchange, um, of solidarity economies, of bioregionalism, all these concepts that are now coming to the Western consciousness have existed already for thousands of years. And I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier, Ashwarya, that the people who actually do this work are the ones who need to be teaching about it and resources need to be generated such that these people can do this labor and yeah how resources need to be redistributed and reallocated so that you know the indigenous people and the BIPOC people and the people on the front lines can actually do this work of education um, 
so i think critical thinking and critical feeling are the two ba- basic sort of forms of education that are needed in order for the youth and anyone to actually um start um you know understanding about how these three c's are interlinked and in particular what i realized um taking a class this semester um which was called ecotopian visions actually it was about how can we imagine pluriversal just green futures for ourselves um i learned about the importance of embodied learning uh, you know um and the importance of being in small groups and going back to the question of you know how can we Uh, make emergent the trauma that we carry on either in our blood or in our genes or from our own lives related to capitalism related to colonialism related to climate change especially as young people who have no idea whether they're going to have a future is to talk more is to feel more is to engage with these concepts in a manner where we are actually using our bodies and feel intimate and feel vulnerable with other people that are also feeling the same things so you know i won't go more into this but the basic idea is that education around these themes and in in general education that is going to um bring together people who are going to transform the world i think can only happen a if it's fundamentally decolonized um in its instruction in its conceptualization in its theory and in who is actually imparting um and creating the processes that you know allow knowledge to emerge co-creation of knowledge um and then b is the you know the way um um in which it it inculcates critical thinking and critical feeling and small groups intimacy vulnerability being able to tap into these really complex feelings um and emotions that emerge um from being someone who has to wake up every day in most parts of the world and embody this colonized capitalized self because that is the only form of being that society rewards um yeah thank you so much um i really like how you mentioned decolonizing because that is such a huge aspect um of education that needs to be talked about thank you all right so our next question is kind of touching on what team um touched on earlier green capitalism so green capitalism is an approach that says we can use the market to fix the environment we live in um if you think we can achieve climate justice and capitalism what do you think has stopped us from getting there if not why do you think the idea of green capitalism appeals to such a large audience team would you like to go first okay i'll go first um i think we've not gotten there because green capitalism green capitalism is a theoretical impossibility i would say you cannot have capitalism without economic growth or otherwise you have a very sad form of capitalism that is always in recession but capitalism by definition as i defined it earlier you know a system centered around the accumulation of capital if it function as it should function then you have ec- accumulation which we measure as economic growth second piece of the puzzle is you cannot have green growth so now this is you you can of course have uh more efficient use of resources and and that's possible you know you switch from uh coal to gas and uh, you uh, have more uh, you know renewable energy and this and that so you will just let's say decouple part 
of environmental pressures from GDP, that's possible, but that's actually very tiny what you can do and very tiny what has been happening in the last 20 years when many countries and international organizations were really keen on just boosting green growth. So if that's the best we can do, we've not done it very well. So that's for me like green capitalism, uh, that's it just doesn't work in theory. And I think the, the history, uh, the, the ecological track of, of capitalist economies is not giving up much hope. I think maybe 20 years ago, the, the story of green capitalism was perhaps a bit more seducing than it is today. At least that's, that's my feeling with the emergence of concept like uh, degrowth and, and many more critical studies, for example, on, on ecological unequal exchange that didn't exist before, uh, the rise of, you know, way much more ecofeminist eco uh, literature and all of, and other texts in, in political ecology. So I think now it's becoming easier and easier to show the theoretical limits of green capitalism, but it is still a nice story. It's a nice story because it, um, it's a story where everyone win. It's a win-win-win. So some you know, people can just make money and corporation can create profits. And that's great because then workers get paid more. And that's fantastic because all exporting countries just get more revenues that they can invest in public infrastructure. And that's great because consumers get access to cheap products and so they can uh, you know, uh, just satisfy their needs better. And because we're getting so much more efficient in doing this, we can save money on the side and invest it in nice thing like renewable energy. We can even use it for historical reparations and to, you know, remunerate all forms of, you know, uh, labors that we did not remunerate before. So that's kind of the story of like, nobody loses. But that's my problem as a political economist. It's just, uh, if, if nobody loses, there's a problem here. Because again, if our analysis was to show that, and I, I like when she talks of colonialist capitalism, it's, it was, so if that is true and capitalism succeeded on the back of, uh, of humans and non-human others, then how is it, how can it continue and, and just be a win-win? So I think that's the, the tough discussion. No one wants to really have to put it on the table of who was harmed by capitalism because this bring the, you know, the, the ecological debt question and all other forms of debt. And then, you know, tough questions about redistribution and further distribution and access to resources and things that uh, are making, let's say, um, uh, politics so much more complicated than the good old just uh, business as usual. Let's keep doing what we're doing, but let's do it a bit faster or, you know, a bit smarter, uh, like people say, like healthier growth or smarter growth without really putting uh, specific changes behind these words. Thank you so much, team. That was wonderful. And I really, really liked how you went in depth in that and kind of explained how economists think um, and the complexities of just talking about green capitalism in itself. All right, uh, Sheikh, do you have anything to add? If you'd asked me this question, like I think five, six months ago, I would have been very staunchly against green capitalism. And I still am. And I think Tim's point on how green capitalism by itself is a paradox um, is what everyone should remember. Um, but I want to try and offers a pathway forward because I, the more I delve into climate action, the more I realize that 
what's keeping us from achieving success is continued polarization which is what you know people um and ideologies in the elite um rely upon to keep us sort of fighting each other and not actually coming together and building that collective consciousness so <clears throat> i think the reason why green capitalism appeals to people is because it's comfortable because it doesn't acknowledge the deep work of healing and um you know reintegration that needs to happen if we have to have any chance of surviving as a species um and that's why it sticks um and so in the along the same lines i think something that can be introduced or or brought in more is the idea of regenerative capitalism um and the reason why i'm not so skeptical of something like that is because it actually changes the way we conceive of capital how so far tim has been talking about you know this accumulation of capital um is mostly material capital you know land resources um financial capital debt even um but regenerative capital actually says what if we do away with this binary even um <clears throat> and think of capitals in its very diverse forms so there's there's eight forms of capital that have been um conceptualized by some people which involves you know the the the, the general financial and material capitals but also spiritual capital cultural capital knowledge capital political capital experiential capital these are all the kinds of capitals that pre colonial societies have actually drawn upon and built up for example spiritual and cultural capital are something that many native and pre colonial um, societies built up through millennia and that is a form of capitalism that i think um actually serves the purpose of moving towards a more just and ecological future because then when a company says okay we are going to um be more regenerative in our capitalism it doesn't stop at okay we're going to change our supply chain so that instead of buying exploitative palm oil we are buying like fair trade palm oil but you know fair trade palm oil is still exploitative because it's still taking over humongous swaths of forest that you know um that's disrupting the local economy it's still taking over the livelihoods of the people who have to be plantation workers instead of having their own lands and growing what is best for their community it can move to a definition where um this this company instead of just changing the supply chains reevaluates what impact the supply chain is actually having on all the different stakeholders and in what ways is it actually diminishing the different forms of capital that have been built um in favor of just this one form which is usually financial or material so i think uh, instead of disavowing or rejecting green capitalism um pushing it towards pushing it very very strongly towards regenerative capitalism and just getting people to reevaluate what they consider capital who they consider to be the different stakeholders in that process and what are the kinds of relationalities or kinships that exist between us or them um and yeah just just you know exploring more along these lines i think that could that that has the potential to work and that's what i'm kind of uh pinning uh my near term hopes on definitely definitely and i really liked how you brought up the point about polarization of opinions because yeah i think that is something that often stops activism activists um from reaching these elites right and just talking to them about these issues and how we can address it moving forward from here yes i would i would like to just comment on on something because um the the concept of of regenerative capitalism even though I, i do appreciate how pragmatic it is to to get the conversation started but here i want to bring um just to make sure we really understand what capitalism is about for the audience so when 
capitalism is is an economic and cultural system, you know, uh, characterized by five features. So the, the first one is the concentration of the means of production. So not everyone is producing, but it's concentrated in companies. The second is the predominance of wage labor. The third is, um, let's say, the ownership of produced commodities. So the people that own means of production, they produce commodities and they are private owners of that production. Uh, the fourth is the pursuit of profits. And the fifth is uh, markets as the main mode of allocation. So this is capitalism. And that's it, the definition. If you don't have these, you don't have capitalism. So for me, when I'm hearing the concept of, uh, of uh, rich, rich, regenerative, and I like it very much, it, it let's say fits a bit with the ethics and philosophy of care that I developed in, in the thesis and that I associate to degrowth. This is something that cannot be obtained through these five institutions. I mean, I can give a, a, a couple of examples, but for example, the pursuit of profits. You know, for profits, they rely on just, you know, finding something that is cheap and selling it uh, in a more expensive manner. And if, of course, for-profit companies compete on markets to do this, we know it creates an imperative to grow. And that becomes a problem because then companies try to find the cheapest and the cheapest thing. And that's actually the driver of this colonial expansion and cheapening, trying to cheapen others, the humans and non-human others, in order to mobilize them into a production so just you can make money. Same thing for commodities. A commodity, like, uh, it's a product. So in order to turn a tree that you may have a relation to into a commodity, you need to standardize it, to quantify it, to monetize it, to privatize it, to do a lot of things that uh, in certain cultural contexts should not be done to either a person or a, a piece of nature. I'm thinking of, you know, reciprocity for concentrated means of production. I mean, what me most was uh, the economy of permanence of, of Joseph Cornelius Kumarapa, the, the, the economic advisor of, of Gandhi that wrote this wonderful little economic model uh, back in 1945. And uh, it corresponds like in, in the West to a bit like Murray Bookchin, uh, you know, uh, uh, libertarian municipalism and those eco-anarchist ideas. But here they show that to be regenerative, we need to really address this institution. So in order, for example, to have a caring regenerative economies, we need to have democracy in, this, in, in the way things are produced, in deciding what to produce and how to produce them. Otherwise, it's not going to work because the interest of some people are not going to be taken into account and these people are very likely then to be exploited. This is why for me, concentration of the means of production, first feature of capitalism, incompatible with regeneration. So this is what I mean, like regenerative capitalism, it's possible, of course, to make capitalism less destructive and less exploitative than it is today. And we should absolutely do this. There's also a lot of effort we can do in green growth, decarbonizing economy, increasing circularity, using all these big, uh, you know, trendy words in, in mainstream policy making. But when we're discussing utopias, you know, the far away, we should not be shy of thinking outside of capitalism and imagining, you know, uh, many other post-capitalist uh, ways of organizing economies. I love this discussion. Um, this podcast is a discussion, which I really want to emphasize. So thank you so much. Um, Shik, would you like to continue um, the discussion and add on to that? Or we can move on to the next question. Um, 
Uh, just a quick add-on. Yeah, thank you so much, Tim, for bringing in that very necessary correction and bringing us back to the definition of capitalism. And it just struck me, maybe regenerative cooperativism is actually where, where it's at. Um, and, you know, the, the concepts of municipalism and Kumarappa's strategy of Swaraj. Um, but I guess the, the, the reason I mentioned regenerative capitalism earlier was bringing back to that, that question on polarization, right? Like if you straight away talk to people about, hey, you know, cooperativism, um, they'll brand you a communist and stop listening to you. So I think, yeah, that's where this delicate dance with the forces of change that I um, recently picked up from a conference that I was attending called Reworlding um, come to play. It's, it's figuring out how can we embody these sort of paradoxical emotions that on the one hand, we understand that capitalism needs to be gone like 200 years ago. But at the same time, it is what attracts like most of the population on our planet today. And so how do we take, how do we guide people along this, you know, solidarity economy, eco-feminist journey, um, while still not absolutely dis dissing or jettisoning these concepts? Very, very much needed. Thank you so much. All right. Um, I guess I will pass it on to Saima now for the next question. All this talk about green capitalism reminds me of an article I read recently about natural capitalism by Heather Rogers called The Greening of Capitalism. How many times can I say capitalism? <laughs> the reason I bring it up is because Rogers argues that natural capitalism has become popular due to some people not wanting to change the economic system we live under. The idea that eco-capitalism speaks in a way that inspires hope. The idea that we can all be just and so can our leaders. Do you both agree with this idea or do you find it far too simplistic in explaining green capitalist? Yeah, I, I, I can jump in. Um, that makes me think about a point I would like to make that um, nobody loves capitalism. In the sense of when you read the news, when you, you know, look at government policies, or, they're not about the health of capitalism. The word capitalism you'll find nowhere. It's an uh, academic concept. What you find everywhere is growth. So this is why for me, like, uh, the discussion has shifted uh, perhaps to a, a more, even more difficult to oppose framework because when, uh, you know, capitalism is still a bit obscure and difficult to understand, it sounds like economics, but if I tell you, do you want to grow? Yes or no? You know, it's very easy for you to imagine whatever you want. Yeah, of course, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, I want to grow and I want to have, you know, access to all the things that make me happy for me and my family and the people I love and all of this. So people will just invest into this growth mentality uh, that then we tell them, okay, then it can be green growth. We can still have this, but we just need to do some technical changes so that we have renewable energy instead of fossil energies and that we recycle more and stuff like this. And then we can still have best of, of both worlds. So I think this is, here I'm shifting a bit the question to the, the question of growth. And that's why I've, I've decided to, to, you know, to study degrowth and to talk about the political economy of degrowth and not the political economy of, of post-capitalism. Um, because I think capitalism has, has become a bit of an abstraction. And then now like, okay, I, I'll stop here and I want to hear a, a Sheik's, uh, uh, point of view on the matter and then I'll come back. Um, yeah, thanks, Tim. Um, I, I completely agree that it's actually what growth and development that people actually um, think about when, when, when we have these discussions. 
Um, so I think that, uh, like I said earlier, the, the reason why I think green capitalism appeals to people is because it's a comfortable way of, you know, continuing with how things are, um, but having some kind of this win-win-win situation. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't have much further thoughts on that. I think, you know, something that, um, that, uh, that Ex Extinction Rebellion made it clear to me uh, being part of it. And since then other engagements with intersectionality and with being an ally and being, you know, um, talking about solidarity has made it clear is that there is no change without sacrifice. Um, and I think green capitalism makes it seem like, you know, there is change without sacrifice. You just change um, a little bit about what you're doing and you make it more quote unquote environmentally friendly and suddenly, you know, everyone will have everything that they need. And I think that's what makes it so popular um, is, is continuing in the sense of comfort and comfort in its sense, in my opinion, is a very much a, a capitalist construct because most ways of being um, pre-colonialism didn't have comfort associated with a good life. A good life was around being in community, having enough to eat, being in good health, and all of these things require you to be uncomfortable, require you to, you know, um, dislodge yourself from states of inertia and actually go out and forage or deal with, you know, conflict and, and emotional um, fluctuations. So, yeah, and and uh, so so th I think that, that that's that's what my main thought around this is, um, with regards to whether green capitalism can lead to um, uh, a just transition or any of that. I feel like um, Tim's already talked a lot to that, so I, I won't belabor that point. I think the answer is clearly uh, a resounding no. Um, yeah, I'll pass it back to Tim here. I, I wanted to add something. It's very often I think people associate capitalism to that big happiness machine you know when you are you for or against capitalism people think well you know i like to have a uh, hot water and a roof on my head and access to quality health care and good education for my kids but the real question is or is capitalism the best way of satisfying these needs and or organizing the economy as a whole so if we were more concrete and i think this is really what economists need to do be more concrete, escape abstraction and ask more concrete question. Where to ask, not like, you know, do you like, do, do you like capitalism? But as in, do you like to have means of production concentrated? Then people will be like, oh, most probably they shall, you know, it, it depends. It's, you know, most people have the experience of, uh, you know, small shops and like to make some of their stuff themselves and may enjoy doing a bit of gardening, growing food for themselves. So I think, you know, no one will be like, no, I want to consume and have everything produced uh, outside. So then do you like, oh, do you like wage labor? <laughs> Again, I mean, here I'm going to bring David's Graeber concept of bullshit jobs and, you know, the, 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 all the precarity we see through labor and all those surveys reporting how many people are miserable uh, through uh, the social relations that are happening at the workplace. So, so then perhaps, you know, then they will be like, oh, no, no, you know, the, the, I'm not happy with work as it is in a capitalist setting. Then you're, you could continue the list and be like, oh, do you like for-profit companies? I mean, do, how many people do you think in the street will tell you, I love for-profit companies? I think we should have more for-profit companies than not for-profit companies. I mean, you would have Milton Friedman and probably, you know, Gordon Gekko, and that's pretty much it. So I think people will just uh, look at here in France at the social and solidarity economy and all those not-for-profit cooperatives 
objectives and new modes of, of businesses that are mission oriented. And they, oh, that makes sense. You know, those companies focusing on providing energy, healthcare, uh, healthy water, all of this. They, of course, they should not focus on profit. They should focus on just uh, improving their mission to satisfy a concrete need. I think this appeals to people's experience. Same thing as market. If you tell them, you know, should we, uh, should, do you like markets for everything? Do, would you want to have a market for organs? Or, you know, would you want to, your, your kids to, you know, be raised by a professional uh, child caretaker instead of be raised by you and your family members? And then again, it's a question of balance. But I think for each of these small questions, people will have skepticism towards capitalism as a way of, uh, you know, guaranteeing well-being. And that's precisely what the question should be about today. But the design of each of these institutions, and that I'm coming back to, to education, and then I stop to say we need to empower ourselves to become, you know, designer of more desirable economies by not choosing between socialism or capitalism or those big abstract terms from the past, but by picking and choosing each institutions, for in different cultural context, in, in the whole abundant diversity of the pluriverse, and making the economies we want. Very, very well put for both of you. Thank you so much. All right. Um, now for the, I guess, heavy loaded question, if I may say so myself, that I think that I think every single one of our audience wants to know, or maybe it's just me, uh, but I definitely want to know the answer to this question. How do you both believe we should go around getting quote unquote rid of capitalism and what are the alternatives? And all, remember all of this in regards to climate change. Shik, would you like to go first? Yeah, I can go first. Um, and I think it's where Tim just left us as well. Um, the concept of pluriverse, um, of pluriversal approaches and very quickly, um, a pluriversal approach, as I understand, or a pluriverse is a world where there is no one way or one end to anything. It's, it's kind of what the current form of capitalism, it's, it's what colonialism ingrained in us, it's what developmentalism does, it makes us believe that there is one end point, an end point where you are earning as much as possible, owning as much as possible, having all the comfort in your life. Um, and that is what, you know, has poisoned our, our planetary civilization. So Pluriverse instead says that to each community their own, um, to each group of people, they decide what is the best way of obtaining well-being for themselves and, and without doing any harm to any other communities, exist in a patchwork of these alternative ways of being. Um, so to highlight, I think there's uh, two key terms here, the one being decentralized or democratic, which Tim has brought up a couple of times. Um, uh, the only way to get rid of capitalism is to have direct participation and involvement of every member of any community that is engaging in an economic decision to be part of that decision making. Um, this is um, called, you know, in, in, in ecological economics, I think it's called deliberative forms of engagement. Um, in other forms, it's called radical democracy, direct democracy, um, in engaged participation. All of these different ways are just ways of saying that if a decision is being made that affects a particular group of people and obviously non-human people as well, um, they should be involved in it and they should be the ones taking a decision rather than arbitrary shareholders, governing board members, ministers, or so on and so forth. So that's, that's, the, that's the first really important thing is you know, how is the decision being made? 
And I think um, the only way to get rid of capitalism is to keep focusing, keep driving forward in every realm of life, whether professional, whether educational, whether in our families, um, striving to make sure that everyone's voice is included in a manner that also makes sure that accommodations are made and inclusivity is central to the process such that those who generally wouldn't speak up or wouldn't have um, you know, the, the resources or the capacities to speak in, an, in, a, in a manner that is beneficial to them are given that support as well and the space is created. The second aspect I think of getting rid of capitalism is again something that Tim obviously has already brought up is this concept of well-being. Um, and I think that is what um, that is what needs to change. Like we um, we all have a similar concept of well-being, which I already described earlier. And that is not how you know that's not how nature works. That's not how humanity works. That's not even how we evolved um, into a social creature that lives in community and that um, you know takes care of each other. We we evolve through each group of people making decisions together around what is the best way of obtaining well-being for themselves and that's how you know societies have survived um, or thrived and that is the only way we can return to uh, not return but rather continue evolving to a future where we live in harmony with the planet because these definitions of well-being have always depended upon what is possible within you know the constraints of that particular ecosystem like you can't have um, you know, a space-faring civilization if you're living in a place where, you know, you don't have enough whatever resources to build rocket ships or whatever. Um, and similarly, other such capitalistic pursuits have only succeeded because one particular areas of people's definition of well-being has been forcefully imposed upon other people such that they feel like it's their it's of their own volition. Um, so I think going back to, you know, to the idea of decentralizing, the idea of critical thinking, the idea of embodied participation, I do not feel like we can get rid of capitalism through any sort of large governmental UN de designated or any sort of macro moves because um, that's, that is what is called the problem in the first place. And I don't believe in giving back power to the same institutions that created the problems in the first place it very much has to be a grassroots led bottoms up slow revolution where resource redistribution is facilitated allyship is made sure that happens in a decolonial manner where reparations are made both from colonizing countries but also colonial governments um, like my own government in the state of india which has done a lot of damage to indigenous peoples in its own country um, where you know, um, people are equipped at the very grassroots to be the most adequate decision makers of their own uh, problems and questions and projects and solutions and are given access to scientists like, uh, you know, economists like Tim and other scientists who actually do the work. And there are numerous examples around the world which I actually studied um, for um, my undergraduate thesis under the general um, area of alternatives to development and alternatives to capitalism, uh, actual cases um, where people have managed to evolve and transform their ways of relating to each other, to the economy, to the planet. Um, and in particular, if people are interested, there's this website called um, the Global Tapestry of Alternatives, which documents many of these examples. Um, India specific to India, there's another one called Vikalp Sangam, um, which translates to confluence of alternatives. 
um, that has talked about how this can be done away with, how not done away with, sorry, how alternatives can be made emergent through focusing on people and um, giving space, uh, creating space and facilitating resource flow to peoples at the front lines uh, on the grassroots. And just one last thing, um, I'm just gonna throw this term out there. It's called radical ecological democracy is this way of um, thinking about how transformations from the current state of being to more just ecological regenerative um, oppression free futures can be made. Um, so if anyone's interested in that, I highly recommend you to check it out for a pragmatic, but also revolutionary way of moving from where we are to a post-capitalist, post-growth, post-developmentalist, pluriversal way of being. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I am totally going to look into um, radical um, democracy now, because as soon as you mentioned it, I was just like, wow, this sounds interesting. Thank you so much for that. Um, Tim, do you have anything to add? Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm not going to repeat, uh, because I agree with the Sheik's points about um, radical democracy and focusing on well-being. I actually think if we were to center all processes of production on you know actual concrete needs satisfying targets we would soon realize that capitalism and the logic of endless growth would not make any sense because satisfying needs is a matter of thresholds of sufficiency so you need just you know enough uh, um, enough to uh, to be healthy or to have a good diet or to you know be able to move around to the way you want or to see your friends all of this all of these needs they're satiable so you just satisfy them and then you're just above the threshold and you're healthy it's not something you need an exponential growth of you know the number of doctors every day or the number of bikes you know you need one bike to move around and when it doesn't work you need to, to fix it but here I'm maybe going to give a couple of examples, and I'm, I'm, I'm coming back. So because your question was, how do we get rid of, of capitalism? And in the thesis, I've, I've spent an entire section of this, but the, the kind of motto I developed, the typology, is to transform uh, the key, uh, the coin, and the clock. So that's my framework to talk about the, the three key, let's say, uh, meta-institutions of capitalism, property, work, and money. So... Talking about uh, property, I mean, that's precisely what she was talking about, about, about democracy. The problem today of capitalism, not only capitalism, but global capitalism, is that it managed to create what I like to call an economic banality of evil. So through diluted chains of production, with so many people involved that are just pushing a button, we do manage to create massive situation of exploitation where no one feels responsibility. The solution to this is to decentralize decision-making, to relocalize economic activities, to basically recreate relations uh, between you know, the people who produce, the people who consume, the people that are affected by their production, so we can uh, make sure, so everyone's around the table when we make the decision and no one uh, toes get uh, stumbled upon. That's not the right expression, but <laughs> no one get exploited in the mix. Uh, then talking about work, um, here I'm, I'm taking inspiration from anarchist current of, of post-work. If you want to read one, only one text about this, I recommend Bob's Black, The Abolition of Work from 1985. The idea of post-work is to say that uh, basically from a very anarchist side, no, 
no one likes to uh, be given orders. So somehow we should have autonomous work. We should be able to, you know, have autonomy at work and no one should be forced to do things they do not consider morals. That's again, here we connected to climate, uh, the climate crisis and other, uh, other aspect of the bio crisis where many people are being forced to do things through wage labor that they would not do otherwise if they were taking care of their cat or their grandmother. Uh, so that's the second aspect, not only work time reduction in the sense of reducing the amount of time we spend in wage labor, I'm not saying to completely, you know, remove it, but just making sure that most of the work and especially the important caring regenerative work is being performed in, in a situation where people are autonomous and can really, you know, apply uh, their, their own frame of ethics uh, to the situation. So that's about work. And, and then about uh, money, I want to I say something that um, another feature, less important, but feature of capitalism is what we call general purpose currency. So if I think the dollar, the euro, you know, it's one piece of money that you can buy whatever you want with. You can buy, you know, candy and a barrel of oil and, uh, you know, ticket of cinema and it connects the entire economy. And I think that creates a lot of problems because then value can just move around so fast and a lot of money being made in the financial market can all of a sudden being used to, you know, drill a hole in the Arctic magically. And that should not be so. So I've been working a lot on complementary or what we call alternative currencies to try to imagine an economy with many diverse currencies, some backed by energy, some backed by food, time banks, a lot of different ways of organizing economic activities, but each time ensuring that somehow, you know, these economic activities are embedded, I like the term embedded in, you know, the customs of the community where they happened, that's the kind of autonomy aspect, and of course, embedded in the ecosystems where they happen, so to make sure that it doesn't go too fast and furious uh, for nature. So that, that will be my, my contribution. And uh, just on, the, on another practical aspect of, of what Sheik was talking about, like economic democracy. I mean, in France, I spent a lot of time studying cooperatives, uh, especially like municipal cooperatives, not-for-profit businesses, you know, small commons, which I think are, are a good example of an, institu an institutions of based on economic democracy. And so, again, you want to get rid of capitalism. It's not going to be a day where we're going to announce on TV, oh, wow, capitalism has fallen over. This is, again, it's a daily struggle where you have capitalist practices, for example, you know, marketization, commodification, and you have anti-capitalist practices, people resisting, creating alternative commons, alternative currencies, reducing work to do self-organized uh, self activities, what to get rid of capitalism, we actually need to build so many to oppose the capitalist practices and institutions, and then to create a diversity of alternative uh, um, uh, institutions. I see that Sheik is writing, making it obsolete. And that's beautiful. Precisely, we need to make capitalism obsolete. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, so many ideas, so many thoughts. Thank you so much for all of that. All right, um, so our next question is, recently I personally heard a person say, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, which has really, really got the gears in my mind turning. 
Now, an example of such unethical consumerism is fast fashion because it exploits workers, specifically racialized brown folk, and is harmful for the environment, obviously. So do you think that consumerism and private capital caused by capitalism comes in the way with any chance at being sustainable and even ethical? If not, why? Timothy, would you like to go ahead? Sure. I mean, the story of consumerism is basically that you can, the more you have, the better you are. It's a story that conflates having with being, and that tells you that uh, money buys happiness and your personal development can be kept tracked on uh, with the digits on your bank account and what they allowed to purchase. What's problematic about that story is that it's a, it's a very recent and regional story that was mostly created by uh, advertising agencies and uh, a lot of many, let's say, interest of, of the ruling class in, let's say, accelerating the economy, pursuing growth so that they could lose their profits. So I don't think there's anything natural and that also we are very used to make the experience of relational consumption. You know, I don't want to buy a bike just to have a bike. I want to buy a bike to go see my friends, to bike with my friends. If I don't want to, you know, I don't want to buy a chessboard and play alone. The, the chessboard has a value only if I can play chess with people. You know, so here we see that they actually, the goods and the services, it's a very small part of the, the grand project of satisfying needs. Consumerism is, a, let's say, simplification, saying, no, you, what you need is the good. You need to have the best chess game and buy you know, a new one every and to have more chess games and then you'll just be happy. But I think it's, it's quite a lie. So first, before we even speak of ethical consumption, like, let's try to, to, to question the idea of consumption itself. And in, in degrowth, we like the term of, uh, you know, of voluntary simplicity, which is basically the idea of, of questioning your patterns of consumption based on, you know, how they manage to fulfill your needs and how they may impact uh, the ability or others, human and non-human others, to satisfy their needs. So that's the first kind of clearing, you know, the decluttering, simplifying of needs. And once we've done this, of course, then the ethical kicks in. I mean, there's the double part. Like, okay, then I've decided I still need to, I still would like to have a chessboard. And of course, there's many ways uh, to produce that chessboard, some of them being just more ethical than others. And then, uh, then it's just a matter of finding the, the best way of, of doing this. Amazing. Sheikh, would you like to add on? Yeah, just to very quickly add on. Um, I personally do not think that there is any ethical consumption, let alone consumerism um, within the current economic paradigm, which some people call capitalism. Um, we call capitalism for easy ease of identification, um, at least for most of the people that um, are part of, you know, the global sort of, I won't call it elite, but amongst the more privileged classes, I mean, just by virtue of, you know, being on the Zoom call, we're probably contributing to some kind of, um, we definitely are contributing to climate change because of the high, um, high carbon emissions of running servers, but we're also probably contributing to um, the, the mining of the blood mining of metals that happens in the basin of Africa um, for producing our electronics and so on and so forth. So I think that the question of whether there is ethical consumption under this economic system is moot. 
Um, and instead of beating ourselves, well, first of all, we need to acknowledge it. And I guess most people are not even at that stage. But for those of us who have acknowledged it, I think it's important to um, not be brought down by it because it, 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 I think it links back to other similar sort of questions of hypocrisy that especially as activist types um, feel quite burdened by. Um, and I personally believe that, you know, we do live in a very, very toxic system. There is no way to be completely free of toxins where the very system that you're enmeshed in within is toxic. So rather than, you know, grieve or think too much about um, being a bad person, it's about how can we make sure that we get rid of the system ASAP, um, which then goes back to the previous question that we, that we tackled. So yeah, so just wanted to add that. Thank you so much um, for both of you for answering that. I will pass it on to Simon now for the next question. In summer 2019 in Brighton, youth climate strikers carried a banner that stated colonialism plus capitalism equals climate breakdown. Also in Brighton, members from the Youth Strike for Brighton local group constructed a workshop titled Introduction to Climate Justice, where they explored the relationships between colonialism, the climate crisis and neoliberalism. Which gets me onto my question, which is how do other youth protest groups educate their members about these complex concepts in an accessible way? Sheik, if you'd like to go ahead. I think part of this answer, or actually a lot of it, just harks back to um, the discussion we briefly had earlier on how to educate people about this. Um, I feel like any, any form of education that is not collaborative and co-creative is unlikely to have a real impact on the attendees. I mean, you can lecture about these things, you can you know, trace the history of how colonialism formed the basis with it from which you know, the monster of capitalism emerged and the monster of capitalism by its very virtue of existence is anti-evolutionary, is anti-planetary. And that's how the climate crisis happened. And along the way, of course, there was just unspeakable amounts of injustice that were done to all sorts of um, people um, that were opposed to the capitalist colonialist paradigm or sometimes un even unwary of it, but in the way of this virus, this cancer that has plagued our planet um, and how you know that trauma continues to be carried forward in our bodies, in our day-to-day -day existence. Um, the need for reparations is is you know unspeakably um, necessary um, and you know all of that lecturing can happen but I feel like the only way that this can actually be put through to youth you know many of whom are of course very willing and eager to to, to embody these um, ideas and concepts is to do it in a manner where we create this knowledge together so where the instead of lecturers or teachers there are facilitators and these are facilitators who know how to get people to um, take a concept without an informational overwhelm um, and you know actually pertain it to their to their own lives and engage in, for example, you know um, some kind of movement or some kind of dance, um, some kind of connection to the self, uh, this a kind of connection that capitalism rarely allows us to feel. You know, engaging in maybe practices of mindfulness. Many of the recent gatherings that I've gone to. Um, have involved a grounding meditation at the start, which reconnects us to a sense of place and time and land and being and relationality and gratitude. More than the content that needs to be talked about, it's how we co-create this knowledge together, 
how we bring in practices, um, bring in ways of seeing that capitalism, colonialism has deliberately removed from our collective consciousness. You know, again, looking to indigenous peoples and their ways of community co-learning, um, their ways of actually um, supporting, you know, younger people through the through the um, through the journey of you know becoming an adult, becoming aware of all these systemic interconnections, these intersectionalities, um, and being slow about it. I am of the strong opinion that one session or even a month's worth of sessions on colonialism, capitalism, and climate change um, will not go as far as it being embedded into the very way of functioning of you know making sure that everything from the campaigns that are designed to the way that people are onboarded into teams to the language that is used in conversation to the ways in which accommodations and radical radically inclusive spaces are created for um, especially in the global north but also in the non-global north countries um, or the mapa where they have their own internal forms of colonialism and um, uh, separation and discrimination, how you know these are embodied in the very existence of the climate activist group rather than as an add-on, as a class that that the strikers take. No, thank you. That was incredibly thoughtful. T um, team, is there anything you would like to add? Add something small, definitely not on the form because uh, here she just made a, a beautiful uh, work in, in explaining uh, the form the situation would take. In terms of, of content, and here I'm reflecting on my own experience as a student, what really helped me is, is, um, is to find concepts that I didn't know existed before, uh, like the existence you know, of, of the School of Feminist Economics, which I've discovered shamefully late for someone uh, that uh, has been trained in economics. And if we say that one of the urgent tasks is to deconstruct certain imaginaries and certain theories like the green growth hypothesis, we need tools. I like to see it as a bit of a conceptual sabotage. Uh, if we want to deconstruct capitalism, we need powerful tools in order to do this. I give you a couple of examples, bullshit jobs. In 2013, David Graeber just coined this, this little concept in a small online article that resonated all over the globe with the, the experience of many people. Uh, another concept I like, imperial mode of living. Also something to just uh, point to the affluent lifestyles of certain consumers in uh, you know high-income countries, how these lifestyles require patterns of exploitation elsewhere very powerful to deconstruct the imaginary of win, 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 green and ethical capitalism. The problem is that these concepts, as of now, are not taught at university and they're buried often in very dry literature. So uh, in, 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 in my pedagogical work as a teacher of economics, I'm, I'm trying to just bring this as much of this concept to offer students with a buffet of let's say different lenses uh, to equip them for uh, the critical thinking. Thank you team and Sheik for taking the time out of your day to come and have such an incredibly thoughtful conversation. Hopefully for all the listeners at home, they have learned more about what rebuilding a greener society will look like, the role colonialism has to play in the current climate crisis, and also about degrowth.
I can admit I had no idea what degrowth even meant before researching this episode. Before we end this episode, though, where can our listeners follow both of you and your work online? Okay, well, yeah. So on LinkedIn, uh, you know, I'm Shikhar Agarwal, S-H-I-K-H-A-R-A-G-A-R-W-A-L. My bio says regenerative innovation enthusiast. So that'll probably, you know, get you me. And I probably have one of the more decolonial um, feeds, um, which is quite strange on LinkedIn, not a lot of interaction. Uh, and on, on Instagram, I am Regenishik. So R-E-G-E-N-E-S-H-I-K. Um, but hopefully the next time I'm on a podcast, I'll have some actual website people can go to. Um, on to you, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I did recently create a website for this. So if you go on uh, timotheparic.com, uh, you don't have to type it with a French accent. <laughs> Google will find it. So on that website, you can find uh, my blog where I recently discuss about degrowth. There are also a lot of uh, resources for those of you who are interested in learning more about degrowth books and articles and recommendations for readings. Uh, of course, if you're interested, you can read my uh, PhD dissertation, which is titled The Political Economy of Degrowth from 2019. If you type that straight into Google, you should just get a PDF. Otherwise, it's also on my website. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Team Parikh, where I uh, spend uh, a shameful amount of time. But I think sometimes it's useful to get the conversation going about these topics and to go bother mainstream economics about their narrow vision of the world. <laughs> and that about does it for us at The Voice of the Youth. See you in the next episode.